Uh, this is part two of a sermon I did last year about this time. So I'm not sure you remember part one, but that's okay. I'll do a quick review. Um, I did a trip uh, to Turkey about a couple years ago, and I was in Ephesus. And it, there's, this, there's this post in Ephesus. And on the right side of the post, you can't see it, but there's, um, on the right side, there's a, a diagram of the goddess Artemis. On the left side, there's an inscription to the imperial cult. And that's significant because Ephesus was the number one city in Asia. Uh, today, what the Bible calls Asia, today we call it Turkey. And Paul lived there for three years and made it his headquarters to reach um, the Roman Empire. And then the apostle John lived for 30 years. Around AD 68, when the Roman armies uh, besieged Jerusalem, John got out of town and might have taken Mary, Jesus' mother, with him and lived in Ephesus for 30 years. Well, a year ago, uh, we talked about the right side of the Artemis inscription in Acts 19. Uh, Paul had this populist uprising, this mob, which shouted for a couple, they filled the stadium, 20,000 people, and shouted for two hours, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. It was a, a religious mob, riled up by big business, uh, the silversmiths who were going to lose a lot of business if Artemis was no longer worshipped. And we mentioned that there's a lot of relevance to today, because today the new religion is the self. Right? America's dominant religion is you do you. Embrace your truth. As Tim Keller said, in the ancient world, they said, you Christians, you're, you're too exclusive. You don't honor all of the deities. Today we hear, you, we've had this great awakening, right? And that we hear, you Christians, you're, you're too exclusive. You don't worship all the identities. And so what happened in Acts 19, we're seeing similarly coming back today, where businesses are using economic pressure to compel society to support this new religion and perhaps uh, pressure the Christians. Well, today we want to talk about the left side, because as dangerous as Paul's encounter with that mob was in Acts 19, John's later run-in with the state cult of Caesar was much more intimidating. I want to show you that... Um, the Christian faith, one thing you learn if you travel, the Christian faith is it's historical. It's real. Like, this really happened. And last year in Acts 19, verse 35, we read that the Ephesians were told by the city manager, you are the temple guardian of the great goddess Artemis. And the word for temple guardian in Greek is neokoros. And here in Smyrna, uh, today Izmir, you see this third line, just to show you how the Christian faith is, see, the, the, that's an N and an E and omega, that's the O, a K, an O, that looks like a P, that's an R, O and sigma, that's S, neokoros. So when you're actually in these, you see, wow, the, the, the words that are found in the Bible, they're actually, this is a real historical particular faith. Well, Ephesus was neokoros, the temple guardian of the great Artemis. And because of that, they were denied for the longest time to become the temple guardian, the neokoros, of the imperial cult. And by imperial cult, we mean Caesar, the, the Roman imperial cult. Finally, in AD 89 or 90, near the end of John's life, after he had been living in Ephesus for 20 years, Ephesus finally got this right. And it was kind of like... Um, to, to be a Neokoros temple guardian for the imperial cult, it'd be a lot like hosting the Olympics today. 
right? All these nations, all these cities, they vie to be, have the honor to host the Olympics. And so Ephesus finally, around AD 89 or 90, got the right to have their own temple for, the, for Caesar. And here's what's left. This is the temple of Domitian. It was the biggest temple in Ephesus, but all that's left is the foundation. And you see maybe some of the archways that supported the foundation. You get a bigger sense if you show you what's left of the temple in Pergamum. You see the, uh, the, the arches there. The arches were built out to make a level platform, a lot like what Herod did in the Temple Mount, built out a larger mount to build the temple. So all that's left in Pergamon is a, a few of the arches and uh, a few of the pillars and then the arches that were made to make it level. Uh, Pergamon, by the way, was the first city to be called Neokoros, or Temple Guardian, for the imperial cult. Augustus Caesar gave them that right in 29 BC. And they were the only city that had that honor for about 50 years. And that's why in Revelation chapter 2, in verse 13, Jesus says to the church in Pergamum, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Well, the original temple that Augustus built is now lost. This is actually the second one built by Hadrian, around early 2nd century, to honor his predecessor, Trajan. And there, again, there's not a lot left. Looking around, this is the, the body of Trajan. Um, it's worth noting, right? This was the dominant religion of Paul's day. But no one worships Caesar anymore. The Roman imperial cult is gone. If you go to Pergamum, where the first temple was you find a headless statue. Where do you find the head? Yeah, in Ephesus. This is actually um, Titus. What's left of this great Caesar in, in Ephesus? We think the statue at one point was 16 feet high, maybe 23 feet high. All that's left is this humongous head and a, a big arm. And notice how ironic the pose is. The arm is raised in triumph, but clearly it's, it's broken. This is just a parody of its former self. So just to encourage us this morning, Jesus doesn't just defeat his opponents. Jesus humiliates his enemies. Remember um, the Philistines? They captured the Ark of the Covenant and they brought it into the, the temple of Dagon. And the next morning, Dagon falls over. Well, we better prop him up. The next morning, he fell over again. Now, arms and legs have broken off. Jesus doesn't just defeat his opponents. He humiliates them. So think in the first century. You demand, as an emperor, you demand worship? I will preserve then your outsized head and upstretched arm. And it will, I'll keep it in a museum. So 2,000 years later, visitors will come and they'll remember your downfall. Jesus is Lord. He mocks the powers of the ancient world. He humiliates all opponents today, and he will defeat all comers in the future. We can relax, right? Jesus has this. He is Lord. But I want to explain why it can be so hard to forget this, to go back to what's left of the imperial temple in Pergamum. Again, to remember uh, from last year in Acts 19, this mob, this uprising, they're worshiping Artemis. Well, Artemis is a local goddess. You could opt out. 
In fact, in Acts 19 and verse 31, there are the Asiarchs, who are Paul's friends. And they don't worship Artemis, they worship Caesar. They worship the imperial cult. So if you worship a local goddess like Artemis, there's a way to opt out of that. But there's nowhere to run from the emperor. The imperial cult demands everyone's allegiance. And how this started was, it makes sense, right? Augustus Caesar, he just wanted to unify the empire. If the Romans had all these different people groups, and they spoke different languages, different cultures, how are we going to unify us and all get along? Well, what if we all, what if we started this imperial cult? And we're going to ask you to express your loyalty to the empire. We want you to pinch a bit of incense and say, Caesar is Lord. And you pinch a bit of incense to the genius or the spirit of the emperor. Most of the emperors did not claim to be divine. They weren't claimed to be divine until after they died and there was visions of them ascending into heaven. By the way, that's why in Acts, Acts begins with Jesus ascending to heaven. Take that, Roman imperial cult. Our Lord actually is Lord and he ascended. But most emperors did not claim to be divine and they weren't claimed to be divine until after they died and someone had a vision that they went to heaven. A couple like um, Caligula and Nero did claim to be divine while they were still alive, and that did not end well. Right? Nero committed suicide. Also, Domitian, who built this temple near the end of John's life, he demanded to be called Lord and God. And as we'll see in a second, that did not end well for him either. In fact, the imperial cult, this was at Pergamum, it was big all throughout Turkey, or what the Bible calls Asia. Of the seven churches of Revelation, only Thyatira did not have the title Neokoros, temple guardian for Caesar. So this imperial cult, it was meant to be inclusive and tolerant. You people can worship any religion that you want as long as you also worship the emperor. We're not telling you to stop going to church. We're not telling you to stop going to your temples. We're just saying make sure you do this one too. And the Romans did not understand the Christians. Guys, this is just a formality. You don't even have to mean it. Just pinch a bit of incense, say Caesar is Lord, and show us that you're, you're good, loyal citizens. Well, in AD 197, Tertullian, one of the church fathers, he wrote this piece called The Apology, which means a defense. And he was defending the Christians against charges from Rome and the imperial cult. And there were two big charges that the Romans had. First, you Christians, you commit sacrilege. By not worshiping the emperor, you are irreligious, sacrilegious citizens. And Tertullian said, well, think about it. You Romans accuse us Christians of not worshiping Caesar, but you guys, you turn on the emperor when he's dead, like Domitian. Domitian claimed that he is Lord and God, and everyone worship Domitian and say how great Domitian is. But the minute he dies, the Roman Senate, they, quote, condemned his memory. They erased him. In fact, here's from Pergamum. You see this, these blank spaces? That's where Domitian's name was erased from the monuments. And again, that's why Jesus says in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 5, follow me. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life. I'm not like the Romans. You can trust me. I've got you. 
So Tertullian said, we're not sacrilegious. You guys are sacrilegious. You worship him while he's alive and turn on him when he's gone. And what about treason? You say we're, we're traitors. We're, we're not good Roman citizens. He said, well, think about it. We don't pray to the emperor like you do, but we pray for the emperor. Prepositions really matter, right? We pray for the emperor, and we pray to God, to the real God, to the only God who can hear and answer our prayers, and we pray for peace and prosperity. So if you persecute us, just know that you're, you're killing your very best people, your very best citizens. In Pergamum, this is actually the altar that uh, in the temple built to Trajan, in Pergamum, where people would come forward and pinch a bit of incense and say, Caesar is Lord. We have a letter from Pliny, who was ruling as a governor in northwest Turkey. He wrote a letter to Trajan, whose temple this was, and he said, I need some advice here. This is around 112. He said, I'm not sure what to do with the Christians. How serious is their crime? So far, I've executed those who confessed they were Christians, but I've released those who, quote, recited a prayer to the gods at my dictation, made supplication with incense and wine to your statue, and moreover, cursed Christ. Things which, so it is said, those who are really Christians cannot be made to do. And the emperor Trajan responded, well, don't look for them. Don't go out of your way to find the Christians, but if you do find one, go ahead and kill them. He said, quote, they are not to be sought out, but if they are accused and convicted, they must be punished, unless they right then and there deny that he is a Christian and sacrifices to our gods. Tertullian mocked this advice and said, think about it. Why would you kill the Christians if they're not bad enough to go looking for And if they do deserve death, shouldn't you be looking for them? Your advice doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, today, um, I was in Thailand a couple years ago, and the the Thai Christians, they have a very similar, almost literal, one-to-one temptation today, right? Here, pinch a bit of incense and say, Caesar is Lord. In Thailand, it's burn incense to the ancestors. And there's a lot of family pressure. Uh, it's, It's Buddhist, and there's a lot of demonic activity, but if you can imagine, if you're a Christian, there's great pressure from family to just go ahead and show you're a good member of our family, burn the incense to the ancestors. Well, in America, we're not told to burn incense, but do you feel the pressure that's coming to, to compromise our faith, to fit in, to, to get along, to, to actually approve and maybe even participate in what the Bible calls sin? There's this verse that haunts me. It's in Romans. Romans 1, starting in verse 18 through 32, Paul is talking about a lot of sins. There's sexual sins. There's sins of the Spirit. Just a a grocery list of sins. And he ends Romans 1 by saying, God's judgment is coming upon those people who not only do these things, but also approve of those who practice them. I want to be careful that I am not one of those who approves of those who sin. It's not enough for me just for me not to sin, but I don't want to applaud or approve or somehow support others who do sin. So really this comes down to what uh, we talk about, Luther and Calvin talked about 
calling or vocation. And for about 25 years now, I've been telling people, you don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to be a missionary. You can be anything that's good, wholesome, that contributes to culture. That's a calling. That's a vocation. So my dad, for most of his life, was a finished drywaller. Praise God, we need finished drywallers, right? When your septic backs up, you need a plumber. Praise God for plumbers. Praise God for doctors. Praise God for teachers. That's a calling. Never, never apologize for what you're doing. It counts. Amen? It counts. But in the last couple of years, I think there's another side of that I need to emphasize equally. If your calling counts, well, you can't have it both ways. Your calling counts. And you can't say, well, it's just a job. Or a guy's got to do what a guy's got to do. No, it's a, if it counts, we're going to be held accountable. So we need to talk with each other. We need to pray. We need to support each other. I'm not saying there's a, necessarily a one-size-fits-all answer for your pressure that you're feeling. But I know the one thing we're not allowed to say is, yeah, it's just a job. Christians don't have jobs. We have callings. And someday, God himself will hold us accountable for how we did that. And, and just to be clear, our first compromise will not be our last. It just gets easier. So in the early church, there were some moments of big persecution. In around 250, the emperor Decius. Around 311, 313, the emperor Diocletian. And they demanded that Christians and everyone come forward and pinch a bit of incense and sacrifice to Caesar. And sometimes in some villages, there were so many Christians so eager to do that, they, the towns had to delay and say, there's too many of you. Come back tomorrow. There were some Christians who said, you know what? I won't do it, but I know a guy who knows a guy who knows a guy, and they can get me the certificate that said that I did. And then there were some Christians who said, you know what? We just refuse. We're not going to do it. We're not going to pretend that we did it, and we will We'll die if we have to. And the word for that, of course, is martyr. And the word martyr means witness. And these martyrs said that they won, actually, by dying. In fact, the, emperor, uh, sorry, the bishop of Smyrna, Polycarp, in 156, when he was martyred, they said about him, through his patience, he overcame the unrighteous ruler. Well, back to Ephesus and Domitian's temple. Again, this is built around 80, 89 to 90. John's been living there for 20 years. And again, here's the problem. If you're like Paul and you're in Ephesus in Acts 19, you can get out of town. You can run from the local mob. But how do you escape the long arm of Rome? Rome killed Peter. They killed Paul. And John, who's living in Ephesus for 30 years, they exiled him off the coast of Ephesus to the Isle of Patmos, 70 miles off the coast. So if you're a Christian, if you're John, what do you do when everything seems hopeless? When there's nowhere to hide? Well, here's what you do. You read the book of Revelation. When John was at his... It was all over. There's nothing else to do. Jesus came to him in this vision in Revelation. If you have your Bibles, look at Revelation chapter 1. In fact, something good to do, and again, I believe um, 
I'm a progressive dispensational. I believe in a pre-tribulational, premillennial uh, rapture, all that. But it's worth reading Revelation, not just for the future, but what does Revelation have to say to us today who feel the strong arm starting to pressure us? In Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, Jesus says to John, or John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who, who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Martin Luther picked up on this and said we have to what he called be theologians of the cross. And what that means is, just like God is most clearly revealed on the cross when it looks like he's not even in a neighborhood, so we allow the word of God that we hear to interpret what we see. Don't trust your eyes. Don't trust how things look. Let the word of God that you hear tell you what you're looking at. It looks, sometimes, doesn't it feel like, oh my goodness, we're in trouble. This is not going to end well, and maybe fast. Let the word of God interpret what you see. Jesus Christ, right now, is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Every president, every prime minister, every CEO reports to King Jesus. doesn't look like that always, but that's the truth. I love what they said about Polycarp. He was arrested by Herod in the proconsulship of Stasius Quadratus, but in the everlasting reign of Jesus Christ. In fact, let's just look back at that broken Titus statue as I read Revelation chapter 1. That is the best our world can do. And now hear what John saw of his best friend Jesus. Revelation 1.12. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. Again, John was his best friend, and John says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Now, if you would just take an hour today and just read through Revelation, and it's good because there's no football. I know there's that, uh, whatever, but there's no football on TV today. Trust me. Just take an hour and read through Revelation. And when I did it, here's what, quickly what I discovered. First, Jesus is Lord. He is still Lord. Secondly, you read chapters 2 and 3, Jesus loves us. Jesus, who is Lord, loves the church. He wrote these, addressed these seven churches in Revelation. There's nothing the Lord of heaven and earth cares about more than us this morning. And so, I know you know this, but if you're not a member of this church, 
what are you waiting for? Why would you not want to join the bride of Christ? Jesus loves his bride, and that's this. So become a member and, and plug in. And then I also realize as we read Revelation that, that we win. Right? Chapter 1, verse 7. Look, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, and those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will, will mourn? Does that surprise you? Everyone on earth will, will mourn because of him? Don't we typically think when Jesus comes back, it's going to be a celebrate good time. It's going to be a, nothing but a party. But when Jesus comes back, most people are not going to be too happy about that. Look at, at chapter 6 and verse 15. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? Remember these, um, these movies like Independence Day where the aliens are coming? When the aliens come, all of, Amer- all of the countries of the world unite. So America unites with, with Russia. Even the North Koreans get involved. And we send up Will Smith to go fight the aliens. Like, nothing unites the world more like an outsider. Well, Jesus is the ultimate outsider. He's the alien. And when he comes back to take rightful claim over what he owns, the world's going to want to fight him. It's true that we may suffer now. In chapter 1, verse 9, John says, I was on the island of Patmos, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. We may suffer now for the word of God and Jesus. But again, that, that's the best way to invest your life. Right? Jesus said, the gates of hell can't stop the church. If you want to, if you have time and money and resources invested in this place, you have Jesus' guarantee. Nothing will stop Jesus and his church. I want to end by just looking at what Jesus said, because this is all about Ephesus. Look at chapter 2 and what Jesus said to the church in Ephesus. In chapter 2, verse 1. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds. I know your hard work. I know your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. You have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Five times Jesus praises them for their perseverance. In fact, um, let me just don't turn there. Let me just read to you Acts chapter 20. When Paul was saying farewell to the elders in Ephesus in Acts 20, here's what he says in verse 28. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember, for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. In Acts 20, Paul told the Ephesian elders... Be on your guard. Watch out for wolves. Watch out for false teaching. In chapter 2 of Revelation, Jesus says, Good job. You did it. Imagine Jesus himself saying, 
You did exactly what I, through Paul, told you to do. Wonderful. But then in verse 4 of chapter 2, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Jesus says, you guys are doing so well at keeping the faith and guarding yourselves against heresy. But you've, you've lost your love. Your first love, which would be in 1 John 4, John talks about love, Christ's love for us and our love for Christ and our love for each other. What scares me about this is we have to defend the faith. Absolutely. But there's a danger. There's a risk. We, we risk losing something even as we do what we have to do. Because we can be playing so much defense and trying to protect the faith. We can and we have to do that. Absolutely. But we can forget about offense. We can be so trapped in what we're against we forget what we're for. As um, Andy Crouch has talked about, there's a difference between postures and gestures, right? Sometimes <coughs> our gesture towards the world has got to be, no, stop that. You're hurting yourself. And we, and we have to do that. But if you do the same gesture over and over again, it can harden into a posture. And we just become negative people who are always saying no. So the trick is, we have to say no sometimes, right? But our no's have to be couched within a yes, a bigger yes. We're against that because we're for this. We're for Jesus, and we're for life, and that's why we're against this. So sometimes, um, just to be honest, I I find myself in the last couple years obsessing over websites that are always reporting the threats that are coming. Uh, Who's persecuting us now? And who's threatening our religious freedom? And by the way, we should care about freedom, right? Religious freedom is really important, but not just for us. We want freedom for everybody. Because right now, the, the people who have the new religion, they may want to take our freedom away, but someday they're going to need that same freedom because this is shifting very quickly. And pretty, right, people that are in the Orthodox people now in the culture very soon will become the new heretics. And so we all need freedom, right? But sometimes I can spend so much time getting angry that I almost find myself seeking controversy. I want to be outraged today. And then I find myself, once I, once I am outraged, I want sympathy. I want someone who who could commiserate. I just want to know that they understand how I feel and what this is doing to me and to us. And then when I don't get sympathy, I just start seeking sadness. Just, just burn it down, right? I just want, end it all. Fine, you can have it. Just, I don't care anymore. And when I read what Jesus said to the church in Ephesus, I'm reminded that that's not healthy and that's not even Christian. I need to return to my first love and be before Jesus and not just against sin. I'm against sin because I'm for Jesus. So a good question I ask myself is, Mike, what do you love? 
Do you love Jesus? Do you love people? Or do you really just desire conflict and outrage and sympathy and sadness? And one thing, as I'm driving down this morning, that, you know, one that way that should help me is remembering that I'm a sinner. Right? I'm a sinner. With, I'm as lost as anyone without Jesus. And when I remember that, it's easier to love the people that might be hurting me and to love Jesus and want to bring them together. Because this is, if you think about it, this is the Christian advantage. Right? We live in a, they call it a woke, cancel culture where the one thing our culture lacks right now is grace and forgiveness and second chances. Right? If you tweet the wrong thing and you, the mob comes for you, all you can do is confess, and then you're condemned. And you're, you're through. What an opportunity for the church. Right? This is a place for sinners, for racists and sexists and ageists and, and all of the things that we've done that, humil- that we're, we're embarrassed even to admit. This is a place to come and be loved and be forgiven. We have grace. We have forgiveness We have the one thing you cannot get anywhere else than in this church. But we can lose it if we lose our first love. And spend so much time being outraged, we forget what we're for. We're for Jesus. And we're for bringing Jesus into people's lives and people who need, like us, who need Jesus. And if we do this well, in chapter 2, verse 7, Jesus says, To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. In verse 10, he tells the church in Smyrna, Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Then in chapter 7, which echoes the song we sang this morning, our last song about who is worthy, Jesus is worthy. Revelation 7, verse 9, we have heaven's celebration ceremony. Revelation 7, verse 9. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And I cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now, John had this vision And when he saw these saints in heaven holding palm branches and wearing white robes, he he knew what that meant. This is a a frieze from Ephesus of the goddess Nike. Nike is the goddess of victory. And notice she's got the, the wreath in her left hand, the palm branches in her right hand, wearing a white robe. And do you notice the check mark, the swoosh? See the swoosh? That's the goddess Nike. Uh, Phil Knight, when he wanted a logo for his shoe company, he picked the goddess Nike and the swoosh. Jesus saw it first. That's our logo, right? Salvation belongs to Jesus, who won for us, and now he wins with us. So outside Ephesus today, if you go there, this is the tomb of the Apostle John. It reminds me that um, in John's day and shortly after, there were many Christians 
who sacrificed a bit of incense to Caesar, how many of them would give anything to have that back now? As Jesus said, don't fear them who can kill the body. That's all they can do. And after that, their, their power is done. And so as I think about John's tomb, someday I, someday you, someday all of us will stand before Jesus and he's going to want to know, did we, like the church in Ephesus, did we keep the faith? Did we persevere? Were we against what he was against? And just as important, he's going to ask, did you keep your first love? Were you for what I am for? So I I know it's scary today. I know the pressure seems sometimes too great. But the book of Revelation is Jesus' word to us. He is Lord. He loves us, his bride. We win. So just do it. Put our faith in Christ and join his celebration. Father, thank you for the gospel that we are not left to ourselves. And we also thank you that we may in our lifetime have an opportunity to to be counted worthy to follow in the steps of our Lord and, and to suffer even in some small way for his name. I pray we would not shrink from that, run from that, live in fear of that. But it is, it really is a privilege, as the early disciples thought. What a privilege that we can follow our Lord in this way. Please guard our hearts. May we be led by love for our Lord and love for others. May, may that be what people even when they say bad things about me, may that be the thing that sticks out. Oh, how they love other people, no matter what. They love their Lord, and they love their neighbors and friends. And I pray that you might see fit to use us to bring them into your family. In Jesus' name we pray.